This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. What do we mean when we say move? That's right, it's time for even more definitions. Let's go. Move. To sell. Hey Jerry, we gotta move that extra inventory we have. Move. To stir emotions. Are you one of those people who are moved to tears during a good rom-com? You are? Good, okay, me too. We can be friends. Move. To leave a place. It's the good old Midwestern goodbye. Slap both your knees and say, well, time to get a move on. Move. To take action. Let's get to it. Let's talk about being called to move. Turn your Bibles to Acts, please. Chapter 11. We're going to be looking at verses 19 to 26. Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 26. Up to this point in the book of Acts, there is only one church in the Mediterranean region. The church in Jerusalem. By the time we get done with this section, there are two. This passage describes the startup and the explosive growth of a new church. This one located in Antioch. Yeah, you've heard that correctly. This is only the second time in Acts where a gathering of believers is called a church. It's the second church. So today we're going to witness the birth and the explosive growth of a new church. And we're going to look at this under four headings. The birth and explosive growth of a healthy church requires four things. Dispersing, speaking, depending, and reflecting. Dispersing, speaking, depending, and reflecting. First, dispersing. Look at verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Now, the last time Stephen was mentioned, his body was being buried. He was killed when a mob pelted him with rocks until he could no longer bear it, and he succumbed to his injuries. Why was he killed? Because he was boldly preaching the gospel to people who either didn't want to hear it or didn't like what they were hearing. And after that horrific event, persecution broke out in Jerusalem, which forced most of the believers in Jerusalem to flee, becoming refugees. And Luke tells us where these believers ended up settling. They ended up settling in Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Here's a map. First time I'm using a laser pointer on a Sunday morning. Okay, all right. Jerusalem, right here. They end up fleeing to Phoenicia, which is this province right here just to the west of Damascus, Cyprus, the island, and Antioch, this city here. This is where all the action takes place in this passage. This is where the second church is born. First one's in Jerusalem, second one's in Antioch. So Antioch is one of the places where these servants of Christ ended up settling. It's a little over 300 miles to the north of Jerusalem. Take that in for a minute, in a non-automotive world. That's a long way to journey. 
Antioch, with a population of that time around 250,000 people, was roughly the same size as Madison. It's a large city. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, trailing just Rome and Alexandria. There were an estimated 25,000 Jews living in Antioch at that time, and it was an international commercial center. It was truly a cosmopolitan city with incredible ethnic diversity. Greeks, Syrians, Phoenicians, Jews, Arabs, Persians, Egyptians, and Indians. But it was also a morally lax city, due in large part to the overpowering presence of the cult of Artemis which brought with it temple prostitution. So under the sovereign hand of God, this is where the second church is born. A densely populated, ethnically diverse, morally lax city. But in order for that to happen, God had to get these believers there. Let's be clear about this. Dispersion... (laughs) through persecution, was not a missionary strategy of the church in Jerusalem. But it was God's missionary strategy. Throughout our lifetime, we have seen at times video of refugee caravans, have we not? Leaving the homeland out of concern for safety. It's a bit fresh, I think. And there's much sadness and empathy that accompanies these images, but a text like this ought to provide us with a glimmer of hope. Scattering may be God's strategy to expand the church. About 10 years ago, I was spending some time with one of our CMA missionaries uh, who was serving in Spain, but he was not ministering to Spaniards. He and his team were evangelizing Muslim refugees fleeing Iraq when ISIS was doing its thing. And the Lord was blessing that ministry greatly. The Lord was using a terrible situation causing a refugee crisis in Europe to give people access to the gospel who otherwise wouldn't have had it. In Acts, dispersion caused by persecution is something God uses to grow the church. But persecution doesn't always have to be the impetus for dispersion. Sometimes I think God is doing that because we're a little bit slow. I need to get you going. What if dispersion is something the church embraced proactively? As a method for growing the church. As a method for, just like here, starting other churches. Why wait for persecution to force our hand? After all, isn't dispersion just the way we obey Jesus' command to go? Go? The next set of questions are obvious. Is God calling me? to disperse to another land to bear witness to Christ. Ostensibly, every missionary that's ever gone out has been asked that question at some point, which God used to provoke them to say, yes, I'm going. 
Within the Christian Missionary Alliance, there are four arms to our mission's work. Access, envision, marketplace, and comma. Access mission work is the traditional missionary. The objective is planting churches around the globe. Envision is our short-term mission strip arm. Marketplace is business as mission. Comma is the relief arm. Have you looked into those? A little closer to home, the population of Ozaki, Washington, Sheboygan, Milwaukee, and Waukesha counties total 1.7 million people. Question, are there enough gospel-preaching churches to reach the people that live here? My answer to that question, I'm a big proponent of more. In our immediate area, we have a population of 208,000 people within a 10-mile radius of where you're sitting. Let's say 50%, which is incredibly high, are followers of Jesus Christ. It's not the real number. 104,000 are not. That's the population of Green Bay. Should attempts be made to reach them? How do we reach them? There's a part of it that God has commissioned us to disperse across the street to your neighbor, across town to your coworker, your family member. Certainly existing churches need to do their part. But existing churches getting bigger can't be the only approach. I don't think we should put all our eggs in that basket. As a point of observation, churches in the first century were neighborhood churches. They didn't have buildings like this. So they met in homes. Well, homes can accommodate only so many people traveling on foot. And if you're traveling on foot, you can only go so far. So maybe there's something to the concept of a neighborhood church that is most conducive to an environment of discipleship. Whether forced or voluntary, dispersion is a prelude to the birth of a new church. Second, speaking. Now, once the believers from Jerusalem arrived in Antioch, what happened? They put together this fantastic strategic plan, 30 pages in length, color graphics, charts. Here's how we're going to do this. No, they They spoke. <laughs> Uh, they spoke. Now, something extraordinary is actually recorded here that we may miss. This is the first detailed account of evangelism done by ordinary believers in Acts. First one, previous accounts involved apostles or prophetic leaders such as Stephen and Philip. There are no names attached to anyone in this scene The label attached to them is those who were scattered and men of Cyprus and Cyrene. Those are the labels. That's who went there. It's so beautiful. We're witnessing the birth and explosive growth of a church through the dispersion of ordinary believers, just like you and me. And these ordinary believers do seemingly ordinary things. It says two things, speaking the word and preaching the Lord Jesus. Speaking the word and preaching the Lord Jesus. This is Jesus' parable of the sower in action. 
In a multi-ethnic, cosmopolitan, morally lax city, the seed of the gospel is cast indiscriminately. Listen, there is someone in your life who needs the gospel cast before them this week. This week, do it. Put it out there. When your friend or coworker or acquaintance asks you what you did this weekend, may I suggest a way to respond to that? Here's what you say. Well, I went to church and I heard the most amazing news I've ever heard. And then just stop talking. Just stop talking. Let the bait sit in the water. You know what the response is going to be. Oh, yeah? What was it? I got to hear about Jesus and the perfect life he lived and the death he died in my place so that when all this madness we call life on earth is over, I inherit an eternal life of indescribable joy. It was utterly euphoric to hear this news again. That's what I did this weekend. What'd you do? (laughs) These believers newly arriving in Antioch did not have massive ministry budgets or cultural status or marketing gurus, but God blessed their efforts. They simply, clearly, plainly put forward the gospel message to pretty much anyone they met. Why did they do that? I think they understood. The gospel is the only message said to contain the very power of God. Don't doubt it. Do not doubt its ability to save through the simple means of speaking. Now, this explosive growth of this church didn't stop with conversions. Apparently, word got back to Jerusalem and the leaders there that this was going on. So they dispatched Barnabas to go check out what's happening. He sees how big this church has become, and he hightails it over to Tarsus, 43 miles away. And it begins an urgent search for Saul to go back with him to Antioch to help with the ongoing teaching ministry of this newly formed church. So he does that. He finds Saul. They go back to Antioch and they spend the next year there. See, the church wasn't satisfied with converts, with professions of faith, with speaking their testimony. They were not content with that. They wanted disciples. And as you read these verses, you really do get the sense that the growth in size of this church is closely linked with its growth in maturity. Now listen, as a preacher, I feel an exorbitant amount of pressure to hold your attention each Sunday. Confession time. An exorbitant amount of pressure to hold your attention each Sunday. I think most preachers do. You have ready access to gifted communicators all over the world, from preachers to stand-up comedians to TED Talk speakers, all that's at your fingertips. And so every preacher can feel a temptation at times to sidestep robust biblical content in order to charm you with humorous anecdotes and tear-jerking stories. 
But there's a ministry principle I have to keep coming back to time and again, and we do this on our staff. And that's this. We win people to what we win them with. We win people to what we win them with. From this text, what does it appear the church and its leaders wanted to win people to? Twice it's mentioned people are added to the Lord or turned to the Lord. That's the objective. The objective is not add them to your local church. That's a wonderful byproduct that happens. That is not the goal. The goal is to add them to the Lord, to see them turn to not church attendance, but to the Lord in repentance and faith. Charles Spurgeon once made a statement I think both Saul and Barnabas would agree with. He said this, Shall these eyes be haunted with visions of men whom I have amused, but into whose heart I have never sought to convey the truth? This is a sentiment we should all adopt. None of us want to be haunted by visions of family members, friends, or co-workers whom we sought to amuse but never convey the truth of the gospel. John Wesley was once out traveling and he was stopped by a robber who demanded his money or his life. And uh, after giving him the money, Wesley spoke up. He said, let me speak one word to you. The time may come when you will regret the course of life in which you are now engaged. (laughs) And then he quoted John 1, 9. Remember this. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin. No more was said. They parted. Robert took off with Wesley's money. Many years after, as Wesley was going out of a church building in which he had been preaching, a stranger introduced himself and asked him if he remembered being waylaid at such and such a time. Wesley said, yes, I remember that. The stranger said, I was that man. And that single verse you quoted on that occasion was the means of a total change in my life and habits. I have long since been in the practice of attending the house of God and of giving attention to his word and trust that I am a Christian. Shall these eyes be haunted with visions of men whom I have amused, but into whose heart I've never sought to convey the truth? The birth and explosive growth of this church didn't just happen. The people spoke the word and preached Jesus. Third, depending. When Barnabas arrived in Antioch, he saw the explosive growth of this new church. Luke has a very interesting way of describing it. In verse 23, it says that when Barnabas came, he saw the grace of God. (laughs) Uh, It doesn't say, I saw this amazing church. 
this huge gathering of believers, when I saw the grace of God, numerous conversions have taken place, and it's not just among Jewish people, but secular people across all ethnicities within a cosmopolitan and morally lax city. And what is Barnabas seeing? The grace of God made visible. All the ministry success that has occurred in Antioch is due to the fact that the hand of the Lord was with them. Verse 21. The hand of the Lord was with them. The hand of the Lord was with them. Listen, the hand of the Lord occurs dozens of times in the scriptures. The hand of the Lord is imagery that occurs numerous times throughout the scriptures. If if the leader of Egypt didn't let the people of Israel free from their bonds of slavery, the hand of the Lord would be against them in the form of a plague on their livestock. When Israel crossed the Jordan River on dry ground, Joshua told them that this was done so the whole earth would know the hand of the Lord is mighty. When Israel fell into habitual idolatry in the book of Judges, we're told that God's hand was against them, which was the root cause of their every defeat. And on and on and on it goes. The main theme is that the hand of the Lord is decisive. When the hand of the Lord shows up, you know it's only going one way. The only other time Luke talks about the hand of the Lord being with someone is Luke 1. It's used to describe a still in utero John the Baptist, prophet and forerunner to Jesus. The hand of the Lord was with him. So the hand of the Lord is the effective cause of the Antiochian church's success. What do you do with application on that? What do you do with application on that? You tell me. I have no idea. Other than being aware? It's not as though the hand of the Lord can be manipulated. You going to go negotiate with God? Hey, God, if you give me, I'll give you, please. Who do you think is writing this story? Woe to us who think God's hand can be forced by mere mortals. Perhaps the thing we only can do, the only things we can do are plead with God in prayer, humbly, for his hand to be with us. And stand in awe of it when we see it. There's a place in Exodus where Moses and God are talking and God has given Moses instructions that he is to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt, through the wilderness, to the promised land. We know Moses. He's a timid guy. He's not a hard-charging kind of guy. And In that conversation, God assures Moses that his presence will go with them. And Moses basically says, good, because if your presence doesn't go with us, then then let's not bother with this experiment. (laughs) Moses was keenly aware of something we need to be keenly aware of. Without the hand of God, it's pointless. Oh, I pray that creates in us a sense of urgent dependency. Urgent, urgent dependency. And when we see the hand of God as Barnabas 
did, when we see the grace of God, we're quick to drop to our knees and worship this God. Last, the birth and the explosive growth of this church also entailed reflecting. This church was a phenomenon the city's inhabitants took notice of. With the hand of the Lord upon the believers who boldly and plainly speak the word, they began to stand out. The final sentence of this section reads, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. We use the term Christian all the time. This is the genesis of it. This is where it all started. The first occasion where you and I are labeled Christians. And what's more remarkable is that this is not a label these Christians in Antioch gave to themselves. It was a label outsiders to Christianity gave to them. In fact, the first documented case of Christians using the term Christian with one another doesn't occur until the second century. This is profound. Presumably, these new Christians came from various ethnic backgrounds that comprised the diverse city of Antioch. But as outsiders looked at this newly formed group, the church, they realized that their fundamental identity was not race, ethnicity, or country of origin. As outsiders looked at this newly formed group, they realized that they needed a new label to fit what they were seeing. They're looking at each other and they're saying, we can't call them Jews, that's not right. We can't call them Greeks, we can't call them Arabs, we can't even call them Romans. Those labels don't fit this group. Outsiders to Christianity are seeing 1 Peter 2.9 lived out. Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Notice here that Peter defines the word race in a completely new and different way. Peter is writing to churches in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. He's writing to a racially diverse group of people, just like the newly formed church in Antioch. So notice he lumps them all together into the singular chosen race. Outsiders to Christianity lump them all together into this new term called Christians. Christians, the church, whatever our race, whatever our ethnicity may be, we actually constitute a new race. A race that is not predicated on skin color, but one we've been born into, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We are not a racially diverse group of people who happen to be Christians. We are a new race called Christians who happen to have diverse races and ethnicities. Now, why would outsiders to this group, why would outsiders to Christianity settle on the label Christian to describe this group? Well, we do know they took the Greek name for Messiah, Christos, and added a Latin suffix producing a hybrid word we pronounce in English as Christian. Why did they settle on that? We need to live, we, we live in a time today where names are nothing more than labels or identification markers. 
That's it. There's no more meaning to it than that. But using names merely as identification markers was not something ancient people practiced. A name had to convey something meaningful about that person, that thing, that entity, that group. The name had to make sense with what the name represented. And so there was tremendous thought put into this naming. So this term Christian carries with it something more profound than you may realize. A similar thing happened to George Fox and his followers in 1640 when he stood before a judge, Judge, Be- judge Bennett, and he said to the judge, quote, bid him to tremble at the word of the Lord. So he bid this judge to tremble at the word of the Lord. And in response, the justice called Fox and his followers Quakers. Elton Trueblood comments saying, one of the best evidences that the image which Fox and his associates conveyed to their contemporaries was a dynamic one is that provided by the nickname Quaker. Same thing happened to the Methodists, who were so named because of their systematic, methodical pursuit of holiness. So with that background, what do you think this newly formed church in Antioch was conveying to the bustling metropolis around them that caused them to be called Christians? They probably looked at them and said, These people are Jesus-obsessed. There was a heavenly vitality now burning in the midst of this depraved city with its idolatry and prostitution. There was a Christness to this church. It was so fundamental to them that their race and ethnicity and country of origin became secondary to them. And outside observers noticed it. If a spiritual dynamic operated among us, causing people to reach for a new word to describe us, what would the word be? What words... Do they use now? When God's people live for Christ in such depth and power that those around them have to strive for a new term to describe what they see. How awesome can that be? Alexander the Great once learned that in his army was a namesake. Another Alexander who was a notorious coward. Alexander the Great, who conquered the world when he was just 23, heard about it and called the soldier before him. Get in here. He said, is your name Alexander? And are you named for me? The trembling coward said, yes, sir, my name is Alexander, and I was named for you. The great general replied and said, then either be brave or change your name. Fortunately, Christ does not say that to us. But 
we are charged with the noble calling of reflecting our namesake. May those around us have to reach for a new word to describe what they're seeing. Let's pray. Lord, we know that your vision is to build your church, to establish it in the remotest parts of the world, to saturate cities with churches that elevate Jesus Christ. We're not just called to live haphazardly through this life. We are called to engage in this vision. So Lord, I pray that you'd show us what you have for us on an individual basis, on a corporate basis. We want to be part of this. We want to be faithful with the life and the breath that you've given us. Lord, I pray that you give us opportunities to do what these believers in Antioch did to speak your word and to preach Jesus. Free us from pressure to have to make it more complicated than that. And Lord, we plead with you that recognizing that if your hand is go with us, then this is, this is not going to work. So I pray that you keep us in a humble posture, dependency on you. Recognizing that the goal of this is to make Jesus visible to the world for the sake of his glory. Lord, I pray that as people look at your church around the world, they would look at us and they would say, these people need a different name. So we pray that we would faithfully bear our namesake. Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.